It's been six years of podcasting, and without our sponsors, we wouldn't be able to bring these podcasts to you. So I want to thank today's sponsors. And first off, we have the Pretentious Pickle Company of 190 Water Street in Plymouth. Uh, If you haven't had a chance to get down there, uh, go down and check out what they make. They have everything pickled you can imagine from uh, pickled beets to carrots to mushrooms to onions to Brussels sprouts and cauliflower. They even have pickled um, uh, or pickled flavor cotton candy, I should say. They make it fresh there every day, and you can go in there and check out what they have to offer. And if you're not in the Plymouth area, you can go to pretentiouspickle.com and check out what they have to offer there as well, and they will ship it out to you. Their stuff is delicious. You should check it out. And uh, they are big fans of ours, and we are big fans of theirs. So thank you to the Pretentious Pickle Company for sponsoring today's episode. And our second sponsor today is Moonrise Cinemas. Moonrise Cinemas is a new drive-in in Plymouth. Uh, right on the Plymouth-Kingston line. They're located at 428 Court Street in Plymouth, Mass. And they offer a great selection of movies. You can go. It's very family-friendly. I went and checked out The Goonies there. They've had Marvel movies, a wide variety of stuff. And they're really starting to expand. They have had uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. This coming year, they're doing music on thursday nights on wednesdays are going to be 420 friendly events so make sure you check out what they have to offer uh, moonrisecinemas.com it's a great venue they have a beer garden they have uh their own food their food's phenomenal and they're bringing back their french toast which i'm very excited about uh, so make sure you check out what they have to offer, moonrisecinemas.com. And if you use in code INEBRIART when purchasing tickets, you'll get 10% off. So make sure you go to moonrisecinemas.com to get your tickets for movies, concerts, and more. And use code INEBRIART for 10% off on your purchase. And now let's jump right into the podcast. Welcome back, Inebriates. This is your host, Andy. And uh, today we are joined by an author. Um, it's been a while since we've had an author on, I think. Um, David Allen Schlafer. I get that? Right? You got it right. Oh, sweet. Good. I, I got it right because you compared it to a beer. And so <laughs> automatically I, I was uh, able to, to get that. Um, so Dave, David is the author of the Far Northern Land Saga, which is, I believe it's a trilogy correct or a planned trilogy trilogy? exactly yeah Yeah, absolutely um so just give us the basic rundown like what what's the book about like what can we expect and uh, you know the basic starter stuff absolutely so the far northern land saga is uh, a fantasy series a fantasy trilogy that is set in uh the world of finnish myth okay and, and what I mean by that is I think most fans, if you're a fantasy fan and you like fantasy literature, whether it's all of the great classic literature like The Lord of the Rings and A Wizard of Earthsea and these type of things, or a lot more contemporary fantasy, we're all familiar with Norse mythology. There's so much out there right now. 
you know, we all know who Loki is, who Thor is, who Odin is. You've got, you know, the movies that have come out. You know, there's probably, who knows, maybe like a hundred, you know, relatively well-known uh, fantasy books or series of different types that are kind of set in that world with Germanic and Norse myth. But what most people don't know is that uh, the Finns in Finland um, have their own mythological and folkloric system. Mm -hmm. uh, Finnish is in a completely separate language group than Indo-European languages. It's not a Germanic language. It's not a Slavic language. Uh, the Finns actually came from the Central Asian steppes, probably, and migrated into what is Finland. Um, and they kept the oral tradition with them uh, of all of this very incredible and really like nature-oriented, uh, you know, beliefs about uh, animistic beliefs about you know spirits and uh, totem animals and things their magic system that they believed in, which was based upon singing, enchanting. They kept all that with them when they moved into Finland and over the course of say a thousand years, they transmitted all of that down uh, basically in songs and like oral poetry. It was never written down until the 19th century. Uh, and when it was finally put together, it's called the Kalevala. And this is the great Finnish national epic. It played a really big role in the formation of Finnish identity and mm -hmm. the, you know, the creation of an independent Finland. It was part of Russia and the Russian Empire at that time. Um, and, and so my story and, and my fantasy trilogy is based in that world. It's the world of the Kalevala. It is the world of Finnish myths and folklore. Uh, many of the characters that I use are the great heroes. Uh, from this incredible, you know, saga and cycle uh, of stories, uh, etc. Uh, of course, many are my own creations, um, and I use that world. It's kind of Iron Age Finland, let's say, 800, 900 AD or so. You can think of like a very early medieval kind of period or a very early Viking period. That's where the Kalevala kind of came out of and was passed down from. Um, and that's more or less the time setting uh, of, of, of the world that I created. Um, and I wanted to do that because I had an opportunity uh, to live in Finland for a very long time, almost five years as a diplomat, as a foreign service officer. And I had been interested uh, in Finnish language and in Finnish folklore for a really long time. I really delved into it while I was there. Um, I would written stuff in other genres. But I, I wanted to do this and to put this series together because I wanted to introduce, really, to an English-speaking audience this amazing world, right? This amazing body of literature. It's so cool. It was so perfect uh, for a, a fantasy story, for a fantasy series. But outside of Finland itself, so few people know about it. Uh, so that was my motivation, and that's kind of a little bit about the world that I worked in uh, and that I created and that you'll see uh, throughout this entire three-book uh, three series. It's the second one that just came out uh, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's The Heir of Lemminkainen, uh, and Lemminkainen is one of the uh, traditional folkloric characters uh, from Finnish myth. Uh, the first book is called The Mark of the Bear Clan. That's probably a little bit easier to remember. Yeah. Uh, or Google and the, the last one uh, hopefully will be out this fall. Uh, so uh, over the course of about one year, we decided to go ahead and release the whole series. Nice. You know, it, it's funny as you're talking about that, I, I was thinking how like as far as, you know, an American audience, you we're familiar with, 
you know, the Roman gods and like you said, the Norse gods. And there's kind of, you know, Odin and Zeus, there's a lot of parallels. Are there kind of analogs in your stories that are kind of like an Odin type character or are they completely different? Because the way you're describing almost made it sound more like a Native American religious kind of like, you know, one with the one with the nature kind of thing. Yeah, you know, that's that's really perceptive uh, because I think it, it's a little bit of both. Um, it's really perceptive that you made the Native American connection uh, because I think there is something to that. Uh, you know, Finland was a lot more sparsely populated uh, than the other parts of uh, Scandinavia. It's really not officially a part of Scandinavia, but colloqu colloquially we all think of it as the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, People lived in, you know, much more basic structures and tribes and in smaller clans and smaller villages. And absolutely shamans uh, were very, very important uh, in Finnish societies and in their tribes all the way up until, you know, the Christianization period, which was very late in Finland. Uh, Finland was probably just about the last area in what we consider Europe today, uh, where the population converted to Christianity. And even as late as like the 16th and 17th century, you still had individuals that were, you know, practicing shamans in effect that yeah. would be living in these communities. And there is a really big part of that that's really analogous, I think, to, you know, what we know from uh, Native American tribal structures uh, and that history in the United States, very much based in uh, a, a certain kind of sympathetic magic, so to speak, uh, and very much based upon someone like a shaman, you know, a magic user uh, that would use his or her power for healing, uh, for, you know, ensuring fertility among people or among crops. Mm -hmm. uh, or among, uh, uh, you know, the herds, let's say, that they were following. They were also a nomadic people. Uh, and so you had the dynamic, just like the, the Laps today, right? The Sami people still herd and follow, you know, the reindeer on their trails. Yeah. The early did that and they moved around. Even when they practiced agriculture, they did slash and burn agriculture. So they would, you know, cut down the trees, you burn, you know, a bunch of birch in a field. You yeah. can use that for maybe only one or two years before it has no more value for actually growing rye or whatever it is you're growing and you move on. And I think that that's something also very similar to the Native American tribes or to many of the Native American tribes. Much more of that, that itinerant and migratory kind of lifestyle. So there's elements of both, you know. Yeah. They're definitely very different. You know, there are some analogs. The the, the big Finnish cultural hero is Vainamoinen, uh, very well known in Finland. This is the, you know, the Gandalf, let's say, kind of figure okay. of Finnish. He's a shaman. He is a wizard. Uh, he was uh, present in the creation of the world and was one of the first, you know, figures or beings to be created. And he plays some kind of a role, big or little. And just about all of the uh, the, the poems that were collected uh, from all of these different songs. Uh, and, and there are some Odin type elements there mm -hmm. you know, that probably bled in. Uh, you know, over the years and over the centuries, uh, as the Finns had closer and closer contact, you know, with their neighbors. So there's some of that, too. But it's really unique. You know, it's certainly not just a 
Finnish version or Finnish replication of yeah. all of the Germanic stuff. It, it's very unique uh, and it's much more grounded. Uh, um, you know, as you mentioned, in the natural world, I think, um, and in speaking to people that were living in very small groups in very, very harsh elements, mm -hmm. you know, with tremendous challenges just to try to survive. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of proverbs, and I tried to draw up on that uh, and really scatter that throughout my work as well. So it's pretty cool stuff. Um, and again, it, it, some of it has been used in, in some other series, the names or the characters, but I wasn't able to find, you know, any series as I started looking and exploring this a decade ago uh, yeah. that had been written in English that was just absolutely fully set in this world. I thought that was pretty exciting. Um, and again, I hope that uh, it would introduce uh, for fantasy fans, it would be an introduction uh, to Finland, to this folklore. Uh, and if they like it, that they would go further and maybe read a little bit of the Kalevala uh, or, you know, dig in and, and find out some other information about this really cool folkloric system that just not too many people know about. Yeah, it's amazing how many like folklore stories are, are kind of like under everyone's nose that, you know, we know the, the, the you know, the, the ones that have been made into Disney movies and, and, and stuff like that. Right, right. But, um, you know, one of our other shows, we just recapped um, local fork, folklore and cryptids. And um, so each host picked, you know, went online and kind of researched one. And there, there was uh, one I had never heard of. And like, I've lived in the South shore area my entire life. And it was about kind of like the discovery of Martha's vineyard. And it was this um, giant, that lived amongst the native American amongst native Americans. And it was just like, I feel like how, like, how does, how do you live your whole life here and not even know that is a thing? Did you miss yeah, that, that's yeah. great. That's funny. Now I feel like here in the U S there's a big kind of um, push for the native Americans to kind of like reclaim, reclaim their, their um, heritage and make sure that, you know, the, the languages aren't lost. Is there that kind of thing amongst um, the Finns where this is kind of, you know, a, a bygone religion and belief system? Is Are they trying to, like, document it better and make sure it doesn't fade away? Yeah, I think to some extent, I, I think you can say that it, it plays a, a, a living role, let's put it that way, in the day-to-day -day life of, of every Finn. Mm -hmm. So it is much more present in Finland than, you know, we talked a little bit about the Norse or the Germanic myths. That's kind of like history and folkloric background, I think. You know, mm -hmm. if you're living in Sweden or Norway or Germany, there'll be some company names and, you know, there'll be some books and things like that out there. But it's not really a present part of your life. And I think it is for most Finns. Uh, you know, the Kalevala and that sense of identity, um, again, it really gave them a sense of identity as a people, as a distinct nation, you know, not just a country, but as a nation. And then after that, a nation state. Um, and so at that, in, in that sense, it is very much alive. You know, there are 
some people, you know, it's a very smaller number that take that one step further and maybe they are involved in like neo-pagan, you know, religion right. that draws back upon that time period. Certainly there are people that do that. Um, I don't think it's that widespread, but you could be the most, you know, button down Nokia executive, you know, walking down the street uh, in Helsinki or something like that. And you are still going to, you know, daily, weekly or whatever, at some point kind of kind of draw with you or carry with you that sense of identity uh, that is so interwoven with these stories uh, and with this folklore. So I think it is unique in that sense. There's not that many places in the Western world probably mm -hmm. where for the majority of people, you know, something like that is still informing their lives and they think about it consciously. You know, it's yeah. not just conscious. It's like a very conscious thing uh, that is there throughout Finnish society, even to this day. And I think that's really helped them survive. You know, it's a small country, right? It's only right. five million people. So not a lot of people, you know, they survived uh, Soviet invasion, you know, during the Second World War, you mm -hmm. know, suffered tremendously, but were able to retain their independence and did not get reincorporated, you know, like the Baltic countries did yep. uh, in the Soviet Union. Um, I think that sense of identity that is so connected with all of this folklore uh, and all of this mythology has has played a, a real part and a significant part in allowing Finnish, Finns, Finland, whatever, to survive and to still be here in the in the 21st century uh, and not just to be, you know, a group that ethnographers read about and study about today, like the Livonians or, you know, some of these other groups that are very obscure and that lived in this Nordic Baltic area, uh, but with their languages kind of, you know, passed away as they were assimilated into other groups and passed from the scene. And somehow the Finns are, are still there. And it's a, it's a cool thing. It's a, a really great country. Uh, I was actually lucky enough to go to Finland for, uh, I think I was only there oh. for like two days. It was gorgeous. Right. Uh, absolutely on my list of places to go back. That was a cruise. We went around the Baltics and hit okay, a bunch of different yeah. places. So much um, fun. That's great. That's oh, it's gorgeous. Um, but you were talking about, uh, you know, kind of the assimilation process. And, you know, the Christian church is known very much for its assimilation, where we kind of, you know, go to these different, you know, countries and tribes and people, whatever, and you know incorporate oh, christmas trees yeah we got we got christmas trees kind of thing is there right. like finnish traditions or finnish stories that people would recognize that's been kind of rehashed into something else that you know um kind of um i i don't know if it's necessarily related to religion um although real quickly as an aside i'll mention that over time uh, Christianity was incorporated into the Kalevala and it's oh, really? kind of interesting it was. Yeah. So especially in some of the last stories and some of the last tales, okay, uh, in the Kalevala itself, there's this melding and this merging where there will be in the same story one element that is absolutely a paganistic, you know, mm -hmm. type of element. And in the very next paragraph, a reference, you know, to 
the Christ child being born or something, you know, kind of at the end of all this epic and this ushers in, you know, the new age and Vinamoinen gets into his boat and sails away, you know, and that's kind of how the epic ends. Uh, and that was grafted on, hmm. you know, over the years to all of these stories so that, you know, in in a lot of ways, just as we, you know, we celebrate Christmas at a certain time or Easter yeah. at a certain time, uh, because, you know, even back during the Roman age, the church authorities and then the imperial authorities were trying to meld existing, you know, non-Christian festivals, etc., with the emerging re religion. Exact same thing happens, you know, yeah. in Finland with all of these tales. So that's kind of cool and that's kind of interesting. Um, and that went on for a long time. But as far as influence and everything, maybe not the Kalevala affecting a religious dynamic, but it has had a really big effect uh, upon uh, uh, literature. And uh, we're talking about fantasy. Uh, and the biggest work that it had an effect upon is uh, J.R. Tolkien uh, and Middle Earth and the Lord of the Rings. Well, as soon as you, um, you, you said, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, the, the main character. Um, Vinamoinen. Vinamoinen got get into a ship and sailed away. I immediately jumped to Gandalf and, and yeah. Frodo going to the, the Undying Lands. You know that was a the immediate. There's like, a lot of them. Yeah. So you know, of course, uh, Tolkien was a philologist, uh, and uh, he he studied language. He created, as we know, you know, all of the languages in the Lord of the Rings, uh, the two main Elven languages, Quenya and Sindarin, uh, and, and everything else. And that really was almost kind of the spark. Uh, for beginning to write the stories that he wrote, you know, yeah. Hobby, uh, even when he was a, a kid, was developing these languages and then coming up with kind of the story around uh, what the language was about. But when he was a student, he found, um, I guess, uh, he usually described as a primer, kind of a dictionary, I guess, with mm -hmm. an explanation uh, of the Finnish language. Uh, and again, this is this very unique language, Finno-Ugric language group, only a handful of contemporary languages in that group really finish in Estonian, being yep. the only two. Uh, and he was blown away by this. He, he thought that it was amazing. He thought that it was a beautiful language, completely different in tone and in phonology, I believe the right word would be, uh, than, than anything else that he was aware of. Um, and then from that, he read these stories in the Kalevala. And that was a tremendous inspiration to him. Uh, so both characters in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings, a Vinamoinen, and you know, yeah. without going into too much detail, some others, heavily influenced characters in The Lord of the Rings. Um, you remember Tom Bombadil, the character yep. in the, the Lord of the Rings? He didn't make it into the movies. Into the movies, right. Uh, Peter Jackson cut him out, uh, but... Uh, uh, you know, you may recall that he is depicted like as the the master of song, right? He's always mm -hmm. singing, and basically uh, the magic that he uses, so to speak, he uses it in the form of, of songs. Remember, he uh, teaches the hobbits that song yep. to sing when the Barrow White has captured mm -hmm. them. Yep. Frodo begins singing that song, and lo and behold, he appears. Uh, all of that is taken right out of the Kalevala, so to speak. That was the influence uh, of what Tolkien read that he wove into that character. Um, and in the Silmarillion and the stories of the first age, I guess we're not going to get that in the Amazon series. That's the, the second age of Middle Earth, but there'll they'll, they'll be a, a little bit of that and some echoes in there. 
Uh, some of that is largely influenced by the Kalevala. So if any of your fans have ever read the Silmarillion, anyone watching, I don't know if you have or not, and you know, I, I'm a huge Tolkien fan, so I've read everything. Uh, maybe the biggest hero uh, in that book is a character called Turin Turumbar, right? Yeah. The Master of Doom by Doom Master. Uh, and that character is 100% based upon a character in the Kalevala called Kulervo. Uh, he is a serf. Uh, he is, you know, oppressed by the people who have come into uh, his father's lands and taken them over. And, you know, he's basically an oppressed slave. He's put through a series of tasks, etc. Mm-hmm. He rebels. He rises up. You know, kills his tormentors through this roundabout way. He winds up meeting his sister, with whom he's been separated. Doesn't know who she is. They get married. She has a child. They discover what is going on. She throws herself, you know, into a river in despair when she realizes what has happened. Yeah. You know, he takes a sword and falls upon it and kills himself. The whole thing, every single element, Tolkien was inspired by that. And the, the tale of Turin in the Silmarillion, he was very open about it. You know, it's like, I'm yeah. not plagiarizing this. This is my version of this amazing finished story. That was his version uh, of this chapter, five chapters, actually, that go through the tale of Kalerbo in the Kalevala. So I mentioned that a little bit long winded, but to give your, your audience a really good example of the influence that this had, you know, on this, you know, classic work right, uh, right. by Tolkien, which is the genesis of modern fantasy, right? We we wouldn't have yeah. this whole genre if it wasn't for uh, for Tolkien and for C.S. Lewis, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that influence of the Kalevala then, you know, no one knows it, but it is there everywhere. Uh, the orcs that yep. are goblins in The Hobbit, absolutely taken from the same magical race that is in the Kalevala. Uh, the Finnish word is hisia, uh, but that was the Tolkien conceptualization uh, of what goblins were. That then became orcs, which are ubiquitous in every game or, you know, every, oh, yeah. uh, every story that you see. So it, it is cool. There are connections and things like that that nobody is aware of, uh, really, that through Tolkien, you know, came out of all of this Finnish folklore and myth uh, and now is spread out, you know, in our contemporary culture just all over the place. And, you know, as I was growing up and I I was reading and studying some of this and getting more into it and, you know, I would start to make that realization, you know, Mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, look at this. Oh, my God, look at that and make those connections. And I can remember doing that. Um, And it was uh, it was a really uh, amazing thing, kind of a a cathartic uh, process for me to realize just how much this uh, relatively obscure to English speakers, you know, body of historical poetry or whatever uh, with such a real presence, but just an unconscious, you know, presence uh, in the UK and the US and Australia um, and other places too. Now, when you're writing, I was I was kind of in my head thinking about, uh, you know, the, the, the Marvel movies. And, you know, when you start off, there's Iron Man and Captain America and, you know, any slight variation, the fans would get all in a tizzy being like, you know, the, you know, whatever silly little um, slight variation. And then as you get into kind of the later stuff like Guardians of the Galaxy and Eternals, 
they're a lot more forgiving because there's fewer fans and they know less about them. Did do you did you feel like a real need where you're writing in this world that isn't of your own and, and there's already literature and, and basis for it to really stick to it? Did you take some liberties with it? Like how how much restraint did you have like as you're writing the story? That that is another great question because it's something I, I really put a lot of thought into it. Um and I really, you know, struggled with it and you know, I was writing this again for English speakers, right? I did live right. in Finland quite a long time, almost five years. Um, and I studied Finnish for an entire year before I went to Helsinki. Uh, so, um, you know, I wasn't coming out of it, coming into it, so to speak, completely in left field. But I was also very aware I'm an American doing this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not Finnish. And there is something kind of audacious I think about attempting that and and trying to pull it off. Yeah. So I, I was really concerned about that, and I was concerned about what you know Finns would think of that. Um, obviously, I've got a ton of Finnish friends uh, because I lived there for so long, and I joined the Kalevala Society, and I did all this kind of stuff while I was there, and I certainly didn't want to do anything that was basically just going to piss off any Finn right, that read yeah. it and make them really angry and, and think that it was something that was disrespectful, you know, to them or to their culture. Um, and that's kind of how I approached it. And I certainly had a lot of conversations with uh, my language teachers in particular, mm-hmm. uh, who were really big mentors to me, just to friends, uh, to some people that were in Finland who deal with this um, in a professional way. They were all very encouraging, and I think they all understood what I wanted to do and what I was trying to do in terms of popularizing, let's say, you know, all of this to audiences that were unaware of it. Uh, so they all thought that it was a pretty cool thing. And that balance that I struck, you know, that, that you're asking about is um, while the world and the some of the motifs, let's say, Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly the description of the physical world, uh, the agriculture, what the villages would have been like, what the climate would have been like, and the challenges that the characters face just as a, re- as a result of that. Well, all of that is absolutely true to life uh, and and also taken, uh, let's say, directly in some way uh, from what is described in the Kalevala. I did not use any of the stories in the Kalevala at all. Okay. So I use characters. I use the magical system, which is based upon songs and chanted incantations. Um, I use the general clash of the Kalevala, which is the clash between the antagonist. Her name is Lohi. She's the witch of the north. This is the personification of winter, you know, to the thing. That is the role, basically, that she plays. That is how historically this character, you know, came into being in all of these songs. She is the antagonist in that, that conflict between winter trying to take over, right? Trying Mm -hmm. to destroy trying to return this land to this pristine type of state. Um, While I took all that, I absolutely stayed away from any of the storylines that are in the Kalevala. Um, And that is kind of the balance that I struck. 
there's one very important magical object in the Kalevala. It's called a Sampo, S-A-M-P-O. Um, and sometimes you'll see references to it in other fantasy works and stuff. It's, mm -hmm. kind of, it's kind of cool because no one knows what it is. It's not really described in the Kalevala. Okay. It's been interpreted in different ways. And usually it's interpreted as a, a mill, you know, like a hand mill, a mm -hmm. magic mill that would make gold or, you know, some other kind of really valuable thing. I wanted the Sampo in there but I took a completely different interpretation of it, right? I yeah. made it in something very, very different. I did not make it the sampo uh, of the Kalevala itself. I thought it was really important to do that, you know, both so that I wasn't trying to present my story, you know, when I was kind of plagiarizing, let's say, you know, yeah. from, from this, you know, tremendous folkloric tradition, uh, uh, but just being inspired by it rather and, and drawing on it. That was a balance that I tried to strike. I hope that I did a good job. Um, I think as a writer, doubtless, no matter what you're trying to do, you're going to fail in, in many mm -hmm. ways. But but I do hope uh, that the sincerity of the attempt uh, is is recognized uh, and that I, I succeeded more times than I failed. And I think most of the feedback that I've gotten uh, from all of my Finnish friends and some fans who have left uh, comments on my website and stuff like that, uh, has been uh, has been positive, um, and you know the main characters of the story of, of my saga they they are my characters. Yeah, uh, there is really two protagonists. Uh, they're children. Uh, in the first book, uh, there's about seven or eight years between each book, so that makes it a true trilogy. Yeah, we think of the Lord of the Rings, for example, as a trilogy, but it's really not. Tolkien was always quick to say it's just one continuous story, right? Right, right. And definition of a trilogy is like separate, distinct, you know, books, typically with some time, you know, in between them. So they grow and they mm -hmm. mature, and they are, uh, you know, young man and a young woman. By the time that the story ends, uh, the first protagonist, uh, just a little girl in the first book. Uh, she survived something that was actually all too common at that time, which is being attacked by a bear, uh, by a mother bear, uh, after stumbling upon the bear and her cub. Uh, she's almost killed. Uh, she is saved by Vinamoinen, this culture hero that we've been talking about. Um, and the attack leaves her with something on her back, and, and she's mutilated to some extent, you know, by this attack. Uh, the scar upon her back and shoulder uh, that looks incredibly and improbably like a bear claw, which is the totem for her clan uh, mm -hmm. and for her people. Um, this doesn't happen by accident, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we know that from you know folklore and lots of fantasy books and everything. Uh, and, and without going into too much detail, that is what launches her uh, down this path that the Finns called the trail for singers. And that was the life path for a shaman or for a wizard. And I love that translation. That is you know, the actual historical phrase, the trail for singers, like an animal trail or right. a reindeer trail. I think it's a reindeer trail probably that mm -hmm. they were getting at. Uh, and that launches her down this, this path uh, with Vinamoinen as her mentor, second protagonist, her opposite in every way. It's a young man. It's, it's not a little girl. It's not a young mm -hmm. woman. While she comes from this, I think I describe it uh, 
in the, the copy for the book, this hard scrabble village that most Finns would have lived in. He comes from a place of privilege. He comes from a noble family on the coast. You know, he is thrust into a position of power uh, unexpectedly when he is still very young. He does not have the gift of, of song. He does not have the gift of singing, the gift of magic. You know, that is not his role or destiny or purpose if yeah. such things exist, which is kind of one of the themes that I try to explore. Does destiny exist? You know, how does free will operate in these type of contexts and these kind of stories? Uh, and so it's a double drama uh, with those two characters as the main characters uh, and, and then the, the traditional characters, Vainamoinen, Lemminkainen, uh, a, a female character, Mieliki, who is the lady of the forest, let's say. Those are the supporting characters. Uh, and that is kind of the backdrop of the world that our main characters find themselves in as they slowly become engaged in this, this you know, titanic clash that is physical but also spiritual with the uh, with Loki, with the antagonist that we mentioned, with this ethereal personification of winner, let's say, uh, yeah. who can take different aspects uh, and who is uh, attacking the the Finnish people uh, at that time in the story. So that's how I tried to to navigate that, and um, I, I hope I did a good job. I certainly really thought about it. Uh, and, and tried very, very hard to get that right so that what I was doing would be a contribution and a positive amplification, uh, amplification of, of, of Finnish stuff and Finnish folklore, uh, but nothing that would come across as, you know, arrogant, this arrogant right. American who thinks that he can actually, you know, weave these stories uh, about, uh, about our literature and about our culture. Um, uh, certainly, I wanted to avoid that. So I've uh, I've been a lifelong fantasy fan, not a big reader, a uh, little dyslexic, so reading is a little tough for me. But you know, movies and cartoons. I mean, I I, I discovered Tolkien from um, the Rankin Bass cartoons. Yeah, um, yeah. But Still you know, text. oh, so so good <laughs> and bad at the same time. Um, <laughs> but you know, like and, and a big D and D nerd. You know, there's nothing better than the Balrog or. Um, uh, oh my god why am I blanking on the um, I'm blanking on like the big D&D monster that I can't think of uh, big big eye and eye stocks I can't think of his, um, uh, the holder the yes holder. thank you thank you thank you so much um, is there a monster in the book are there monsters in the the Finnish uh, legend yeah, there are absolutely, uh, and, and that is one of the really neat things about the stories. Uh, so just like uh, Germanic folklore, let's say, uh, and, and Norse folklore uh, was populated with uh, elves and dwarves and other creatures like that, there were analogs uh, in, in, in Finnish myth probably even more uh, yeah. than in the, the Germanic stories. Uh, and so, yes, there are these magical races. I use both the Finnish names for them mm -hmm. and the anglicized names that have come to be associated with them. So there is an elvish race. Uh, there is a dwarvish race. There is a race of gnomes. There are uh, uh, people who you would identify as a sylph. 
you think about uh, uh, talking about D&D, remember the women or the ladies that would basically like live in trees or, or live in the forests. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the yep. uh, and, um, and quite a few others. Um, they are more morally ambiguous, you know, maybe. Yeah. Uh, than in, in some other stories, so they're not all good. Uh, they're not all bad. Uh, most of them, in the Finnish context, simply have their own existence, and you know their own hopes, desires, whatever, uh, and aren't really necessarily that concerned with the you know the world of, of humans and uh, mortal men and women, as it were. Uh, they play very prominent roles uh, in my stories. Uh, there are monstrous type of creatures, less wholesome creatures. Uh, there's almost a, a race, and, and they don't come into play until the last book, uh, but um, they're almost like the Morlocks, if you think about the time machine. Oh, sure, yeah. And you had that subterranean you know, race that had you know, kind of deformed itself. They were humans, right? That right. was the whole yeah, conceit of uh, you had the Eloy, the beautiful you know, people on top, and they were the unwitting you know, mm -hmm. uh, food, basically, for the, uh, the subterranean dwellers. Uh, there's a race very, very similar to that in different ways. Uh, that winds up coming in. Uh, there are a couple of dragons, uh, and the Finns had their own version uh, of dragons, a little bit different uh, in their ability and a little bit different in their appearance, but still that uh, that it, it seems almost universal, right? I mean, Chinese right. had it, Japanese had it, uh, that concept of a giant snake or a giant worm, mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe winged, maybe not winged, but that was a monstrous creature. Um, and that is a part of the world as well. So it's one of the really neat things about the folklore. Uh, and I certainly populated the world then that I created and that I built uh, with all of those races and all of those creatures in it. Uh, and much of the first book in particular is Ula's journey with Vinamoinen. Uh, and they're kind of traveling all throughout the far northern land. I never used the word Finland uh, in the entire series yeah. until the last page, actually. The far northern land is, in effect, this area. Uh, and journeying from land to land, uh, from kingdom to kingdom, let's say, they're not really kingdoms, but area to area, and encountering uh, these different creatures and places and uh, races uh, that populate uh, Finnish uh, folklore. Um, and, and I actually was inspired by that, by Earthsea. So mm -hmm. if you remember uh, uh, Ursula Kaligan, Wizard of Earthsea, uh, Tombs of Atawine, Farthest Shore, the first three books of the Earthsea series, sometimes called the Earthsea Trilogy, uh, that was kind of the strategy that she used. Uh, her main character, Sparrowhawk, or, or Ged, is just in his boat. Yeah. He's traveling, right? And he's going from island to island and from land to land. I really liked that. And I thought that that was a really cool way that she developed her world, starting off small, but then slowly and gradually expanding it through his travels. Uh, and so I tried to incorporate the same thing so that my main character, Ula, she does the same thing. She's in that little village uh, and has had a very small life at the beginning but slowly through the course of traveling, 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 that world begins to grow and, and her horizons expand 
and it allows the reader then to get a glimpse of all of these cool and amazing and unusual things. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, it sounds like an amazing series. Um, I didn't going into this interview, I had no idea it was about Finland. So now I'm really intrigued because I, I do love history and folklore. And I know nothing about Finnish folklore uh, other than what I've learned today. Um, so it sounds like something cool. really, really cool to check out. Uh, can you tell our listeners where they can go to get the books, find out more, follow you on all the socials, yada, yada, yada? Absolutely. That sounds good. So a couple different places. Uh, you can go to my website. Uh, so that's www.davidschlafer, just my name, .com. Uh, and uh, there'll be, you know, links uh, to where you can buy the book. Uh, there are some uh, uh, short uh, passages. Um, the, the maps uh, for the book are also on the website, and I'll mention that just really quickly uh, because I, I did have some beautiful maps that were drawn uh, by a very well-known fantasy cartographer. Uh, she goes by the pen name, I guess, if that's correct, of Misty B., uh, and uh, absolutely beautiful maps that she used. I think, like a lot of fantasy fans, one of the you know, the first thing I want to do when I open up the book is you know let's check, check out, out the, map. the map. Yeah, she did an amazing job, really beautiful, and those are on the website. And you can also get in touch with me and leave messages or questions if you'd like. Um, I have a Facebook author page that is the Far Northern Land, so the name of the saga. You can go to the Facebook page as well, uh, and you can also find my social media on Twitter and on Instagram. So you can go to any of those places, and it will uh, direct you both to where you can check out the books and also to the website, where you can check out some of the other cool stuff I mentioned. Outstanding. Uh, let's have you back in the fall when your next book comes out, because I, I'd, I'd love, love to, to hear back. more. I feel like we just scratched the surface here. Um, Sounds cool. That's yeah, cool. this, this was a lot of fun. I want to say thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And to our listeners, uh, thank you for listening. And we'll catch you guys again next week. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. And thanks for checking out the show today, listeners. Uh, if you enjoyed the content today, you can go over to patreon.com slash to support the show. You can join over there for just a few dollars a month and help us provide this fun content that you just checked out. You can also email us at inebriart.com with your questions, complaints, and concerns, or you can find us on all social medias at inebriart or at inebriart6 on Instagram. And also don't forget to check out our other shows, Bar Talk Podcast, Old Colony Cast, Inebriart, and all the other shows on the Inebriart Network, which you can find at inebriart.com. Thanks again for listening.